Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the fourth and final lecture of a series of four Terra lectures in American art. This series is sponsored by the Terra Foundation for American Art, which is dedicated to fostering exploration, understanding, and enjoyment of the visual arts of the United States for both national and international audiences. In collaboration with the Department of the History of Art at Oxford and Worcester College, the foundation grants an annual fellowship to a leading scholar in American art. This year, the Terra visiting professor is Emily C. Burns. My name is Jeff Batchen, and I'm head of the Department of History of Art here at the University of Oxford. Our thanks go to the Terra Foundation and to Torch for hosting this series as part of their online events in the Humanities Cultural Program, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwartzman Center for the Humanities. Throughout this evening's lecture, this evening's lecture, if you have any questions, please feel free to type them in the YouTube chat box below, and we will do our best to answer as many of them as part of the session. We are delighted that this lecture will be introduced and moderated by my colleague, Alistair Wright, an associate professor in the Department of History of Art and affiliated with St. John's College here at Oxford. Alistair Wright's research focuses primarily on European modernisms. His first book, Matisse and the Subject of Modernism, was published by Princeton University Press in 2004. More recently, he curated an exhibition of Paul Gauguin's prints at the Princeton University Art Museum. The accompanying catalogue, Gauguin's Paradise Remembered, The Noah Noah Prince, examined the role pl played by reproduction in Gauguin's understanding of French colonialism in Tahiti. Alistair has since published essays in Art History, Oxford Art Journal, Art Bulletin, Burlington Magazine, Gazette de Beaux-Arts, Art Forum, 19th Century Art Worldwide, and in various edited volumes. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Alistair this evening. And now Alistair, a handover proceedings to you. Thank you. Great, thank you, Jeff. Uh, it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce our speaker, Emily Burns, for the fourth and final in her series of Terra Lectures in American Art. Emily is an Associate Professor of Art History at Auburn University and a scholar of transnational, transnational exchange in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Among her many significant publications are her 2018 book, Transnational Frontiers, The American West in France, published with University of Oklahoma Press, and a forthcoming Rutledge anthology entitled Mapping Impressionist Painting in Transnational Contexts, co-edited with Alice M. Rudy Price. This year, she is the Terra, Terra Foundation for American Art visiting professor in the Department of History of Art here in Oxford, where she has been making a hugely positive and important contribution, both as a teacher, my students are delighted to have her here, and as a very highly appreciated colleague. Amongst other things, she has been greatly enriching the research culture of the department, not least through her work on her soon to be completed book manuscript, Performing Innocence, Cultural Belatedness and US Art in Fin de Siècle Paris. And it's from this project that today's talk is drawn. So again, it is with real pleasure that I welcome Emily and turn the mic over to her. Thank you so much, Alistair. And to Jeff, Unmuted. All right, I will start again. Thank you so much, um, Alistair and Jeff and all of my colleagues and students here at the University of Oxford for making what is a tricky time to be a visiting professor abroad so fulfilling. I also thank the Terra Foundation for supporting this um, professorship, as well as my Torch colleagues, um, especially Liz, Holly, and Christina for managing the online series. In 1908, Mary Cassatt included the mirror in a solo exhibition at Durand-Ruel's Paris galleries. The composition uses two mirrors to layer and refract figures of a woman and a child. 
a synchrony in bright contrasting colors, juxtaposes the woman's yellow dress with a large sunflower over her breast, pink upholstery peeking through around the folds of that dress, and a mint green chair frame, which bleeds into the matching green frame of the mirror. Without any ground line, the chair is tilted at an awkward angle from which the figures teeter forward. In this uneasy, irregular space, the child with bulbous belly is uncomfortably placed astride the mother's knee as she adjusts the child's position by its shoulder. Proximity and distance between the mirror on the wall are complicated by the scale of the chair and the relative diminution of the figures in that back reflection. While the mother figure appears twice, the child appears thrice. Um, in painted body, painted wall mirror, and in the handheld mirror held by both mother and child. As the mother's gaze deflects our attention back to the child's handheld reflection, she's relegated to the background as the child's active gaze engages itself and the viewer. Already thick with texture, the painting is most layered with busy and dense brushstrokes on that mirror roundel, as though this element becomes the fulcrum, externalizing the interior layers of the child through the face. These strokes fracture further this already parsed self through the multiple reflections. This painting is one of hundreds of mother-child scenes that Cassatt made between the 1880s and the early 20th century. In the period and often still today, Cassatt is claimed as an iconic and sentimental painter of this feminine iconography. Yet, critics in the period did not always see her paintings in this way. In 1881, Albert Wolff noted occasional, quote, deformed and monstrous corners in her paintings. In 1892, the French critic Georges Leconte noted that her, quote, babies gesticulate with exquisite uncertainty and clumsiness. In 1895, a reviewer for the New York Times concurred that Cassatt's paintings are, quote, frequently hard, crude, and have a tendency toward the brutal. The critic elaborated, and I quote again, inharmonious masses of uncomplimentary color are brought side by side and shock the eye. A rude strength, at times out of keeping with the subject, is noticeable and takes away in a measure for the charm of femininity. Looking at the mirror, the art historian Rebecca Bedell has recently reiterated this tension some critics observed between the subject matter and the rough and textured surface, which Bedell reads as a quote, skirmish with the sentimental, as the artist concedes to it in her subject matter, yet lashes at it with her brush. Other scholars, especially Hollis Clayson, have pressed on the awkwardness of the parent-child relations in Cassatt's paintings, especially in the scale distortions between the gangly and sometimes even gigantic toddlers and the parental figures, whom, as Nancy Mal Matthews has observed, increasingly become pedestals for the more dynamic and layered children. Clayson reads these visual tensions as indicative of Cassatt's perpetual struggle to paint the nude form within socially acceptable conditions, and more importantly for our purposes today, as, quote, indices of her dilemma as a voluntary exile with hybrid and contested cultural nationality. Not quite French, though she lived in France for most of her life, where she exhibited in the last four of the eight Impressionist exhibitions in Paris, and not quite American due to that expatriation, Cassatt occupies a fraught transnational space increasingly characterized by uneasy belonging. Rather than mere maternal affection or symbiotic absorption between mother and child, many of Cassatt's paintings speak to other cultural conversations. And in this lecture, I propose to supplement Matthew's read on Cassatt's modern Madonnas and Clayson's read on her voluntary exile 
with another lens through which to understand Cassatt's complex and often uneasy mother-child relations. And that is the transnational dialogue between France and the United States in which France was often declared the artistic mother of US artists who were figured as children. As scholars working on representations of children in the United States and France in this period, including Barbara Dea Galati, Greg Thomas, Robin Bernstein, and Anna Green, among others, have shown, meanings associated with childhood were fluid and shaped in dialogue with use, a symbol for deference in academic training, a modernist icon of independence, a reference to white innocence to structure racial difference and a psychological foil for adulthood. The implications of Cassatt's precocious and layered children might be understood in dialogue with the wider spectrum of possibilities explored by many US artists working and exhibiting in Paris in both academic and modernist contexts, including Edwin Blashfield and Henry Asawa Tanner, among other women artists who took up the motif of the child, including Cecilia Beau and Ellen Emmett Rand. Taking Cassatt as a fractal in the larger kaleidoscope of paintings of adult-child relationships made by U.S. artists in Paris, this talk explores the anxious terrain in which the child signaled deference and independence in turns, in dialogue with narratives of French influence on U.S. art, and in dialogue with modern psychology in ways that are also linked with French and U.S. colonialism. In 1900, the critic Richard Whiting defined nations in terms of human generations, noting, quote, the ages of nations might be fixed by correspondence with the ages of individual man. And of course, in his estimation, France was old and the United States young. As literary historian Malcolm Bradbury has argued of the fin de siècle, a quote, Oedipal formation between the United States and Europe was based on measuring out the way the child differed from the parent or the new world from the old. If the American, if America was the newborn child of history, Europe was the presumed parent. Many art critics used this foil to highlight French artistic and cultural superiority by figuring France the quote, mother of the arts, according to one critic, and the United States as a dependent child. French critic Ernst Chénault wrote in 1867 about the role of the Universal Exposition in Paris in educating, quote, nations still in their infancy to extract precious fruit from the lessons of Europe. In 1890, Rodolphe Julien, the founder of the Académie Julien, where many U.S. artists studied, defined the Franco-American artistic relationship as follows. The American school is an offshoot of our own. It was born and baptized in Paris. And in spite of, or perhaps because of, all of the awards given to US artists in Paris at the Expo in 1900, the French critic Léon Play scoffed that US artists were still as infants wearing lange, which are diapers, who exhibited, quoting from him, only excessive submission before their masters. This discourse of France as artistic motherland reverberates in paintings like William Bouguereau's 1883 Alma Parents or the Motherland, in which nine sturdy children compete for the mother's breasts and gaze fawningly at her as she stoically stares at the viewer. In a period in which U.S. artist journals and letters abound with comments about their French teachers referring to them as children, and listings in the salon catalogs emphasizing a lineage of art study by publishing the name of the teacher alongside the name of the pupil, Bouguereau's painting allegorizes French artistic centrality. One of the most avidly collected painters by US patrons, the year before the artist had become a full faculty member at the Académie Julienne. Photographs of Bouguereau seated at the center surrounded by his male and female students imply what a contemporary described as his quote, entirely paternal role for his young students whom one critic described as embryo painters. In 1883, the same year as Bouguereau's painting was installed at the Salon, the French critic Arthur Escherac reminded his readers that international artists, quote, all to equal degrees 
sucked art from French breasts. Escherac presented an image of France as artistic mother, the rest of the world, her children, inculcated in the arms of the French Academy. And scholars has, have observed the nationalistic tone in the central figure's deep blue and white clothing with red flowers added to the wheat wreath. And I realize the color is a little bit off. It looks like her robe is black, but it's actually a deep blue. Building on Republican imagery, like Honoré Daumier's mid-century allegory of the French Republic, Bouguereau's strong triangular composition evokes stability and centrality. Yet, such steadiness and permanence hides French anxieties during, in this period after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. One art historian has suggested that the Stormy Mountain uh, background in the painting refers to Alsace and the Rhone, two French territories that were annexed during the war. After that crushing defeat, and with many discussions of declining birth rates, France's civilization was feared to be on the wane. As Robert Nye has shown, birth rates in France fell far behind those of the rest of Europe and the United States. Between 1890 and 1895, death rates exceeded birth rates in France annually, inciting a repopulationist movement. In this context, we might read pictures that celebrate France as cultural motherland as an absorption of anxieties about the declining French populace. Even if French power were on the wane, it remains the cultural superior. Further, Bouguereau varies skin tone between white and beige and olive flesh across the children in his painting, offering racial markers that build ideas of difference absorbed into that French state. In the context of concurrent French imperial projects underway in North Africa and Southeast Asia, the French motherland underscored the growth of French population through colonialism. Bougaud's painting implies that if fecundity were in question within the nation state, through the spread of arts and colonialism, French culture could still grow. Some U.S. artists' renderings of parent-child relationships intercept these complex discourses of art, nation, and imperial networks. Academic painter Edwin Blashfield's approach, typified in the music lesson of 1880, marks a dutiful child in homage to the emulative relationship between French and U.S. painting. The artist made this small painting just after studying at the Atelier of Léon Bonnat between 1867 and 1870, and again from 1874 to 1880. The painting portrays a statuesque woman in Greco-Roman garb, holding out a flute in demonstration and sitting in front of three cherubic children who, positioned on the ground before her, also hold small flutes. The classical white children are simultaneously endearing and bumbling in their attempts to master their craft, echoing what Blashfield described as his artistic parentage. He recalled his 1867 experience studying painting with Bonat using the metaphor of a horse and child, both deferential creatures. Quote, we trotted along wearing blinders, not turning our eyes from side to side, but fixing them on the master in our first kindergarten of art training and before our vision was strong enough to bear looking upon more than one thing at a time. The description of the eyes trained on the master closely aligns with the gaze of the children in their own kindergarten in the music lesson, and this also played in Bouguereau's painting as well. And Blashfield's painting iconographically, stylistically, and metaphorically allegorizes learning and the experience of being taught. His classical subject matter is appropriate for his adoption of the conventions of academic visual language, which emphasized instruction and emulation of established artistic authorities. Blashfield carefully exhibits his academic lessons with his brushwork, his color choices, and his compositional construction. He broadcasts his skill in modeling the human body, particularly with the boy in the foreground, for whom the brushstrokes mime the play of light across the contours of his back. His technique is modeled with a smooth varnished surface in the tradition of Bonnat, whose slightly later first steps indicates his own academic practice with another motif that highlights parentage. Blashfield signed his painting at lower left, 
with the date and the word Paris, a label frequently appended to paintings made by US artists in France in this period. But Blashfield didn't show this painting in Paris. Rather, he exhibited it in 1880 in Boston and Philadelphia as an ideal display of the fruits of art study in Paris as he was moving back to the United States to undertake academic instruction, perpetuating ideas of the United States as heir to Western civilization by quoting Greco-Roman subjects. And indeed this iconography framed much of Blashfield's practice as he transitioned in the role between pupil and instructor. The trope of old Europe crowned by young America circulated widely as dubbed in Anna Klumke's 1898 photographic portrait of her partner, Rosa Bonheur. Yet some US artists increasingly toyed with their models of deference to French tradition. Three of Henry Ossowa Tanner's first major compositions produced or exhibited in Paris in the early 1890s all engaged the theme of the lesson as a symbol of the diffusion of cultural knowledge in music and craft production. Made in Brittany, the bagpipe lesson features a humorous triad at left, the pupils' cheeks filled with air as they awkwardly blow into the mouthpiece, and there's a distant specter of a child watching. This painting was rejected from the Paris Salon, but shown in Philadelphia and Chicago in 1893. Made in Philadelphia, but exhibited in Paris in 1894, Tanner's banjo lesson also takes up the notion of tutelage, here with familial intergenerational tones. Begun before the banjo lesson and completed after it, the young sebo maker depicts an apprentice learning to make wooden shoes commonly produced in family workshops in Brittany, where it was shown in the Salon of 1895. While Albert Boehm has interpreted these lesson paintings through the quote, transmission of skills in an African-American context in dialogue with the ideas of Booker T. Washington and in his attempts to redefine more typically denigrating representations of banjo playing in minstrelsy, Tanner's paintings have not yet been placed in a transnational dialogue with the French academic system with which Tanner was actively in dialogue in the early 1890s since he arrived in Paris, where he studied with Jean-Léon Jérôme, Jean-Joseph Benjamin Constant, and Jean-Paul Laurence. I think all three of the paintings, and especially the young Sabo maker, are weighing in and moderating similar questions about tutelage that inflect Blashfield's The Music Lesson. In some ways, the painting imagines the same almost controlling deference from apprentice to master. Tanner's pose of the boy in profile, turning and pressing on a tool to carve out the inside of the shoes, concentrates his effort on the labor. The placement of the father figure in the background positions his own action, which you can see here, and I will go forward to a detail, um, to appear almost to be sculpting the same shoes with which the boy struggles. And you can see that visual relationship here between the axe and the shoes in the foreground. In this way, a heavy-handed instructor carefully molds the work of the novice. Tanner's academic handling is apparent throughout the painting in building up glazes with touches of impasto in the spirals of wood scattered around the floor. On the other hand, and especially compared with Blashfield's dutiful students, Tanner's apprentice is the focal point, the instructor relegated to the background. His gouache and pastel studies, which you see here, highlight the solitary effort of the boy's labor, his motion emphasized by the hatch marks that mimic his directive force. Also present in the sketches is a mother figure. You can see her here and back here. Um, her um, back to the viewer and she's erased altogether in the exhibited painting. In tracing Tanner's relationship with African-American genre scenes of the period, Dewey Mosby and Albert Boehm have suggested that the apprentice represents a black or mixed race figure, noting in particular the structure of his nose and lips. I agree that the rendering is suggestive and ambiguous and racial markers also represented differently across the sketches. This more visible differentiation across those sketches merged together in the exhibited version 
suggests that the artist is building an amalgamation of racial signifiers, an effect which serves to universalize that figure. As Alan Braddock argues about Tanner's, quote, ambiguous racial construction of Christ just a few years later, such a melding of signifiers suggests Tanner's critiques of race, and here I'm quoting again from Braddock, as an epistemological category. In this way, the divisions among Bougaro's raced children perhaps become adapted into a single figure, an icon of the diverse art student body working in Fonda Siècle Paris. While the young sable maker was shown at the salon, French critics did not comment on the painting, and US critics seemed to map narratives of the pupils' discarded sable attempts all over the floor as indicative of the painter's phase. Helen Cole emphasized it as part of Tanner's path to an incipient individual practice. The New York Times concurred that the painting still revealed, quote, traces of academic lessons. But Tanner would soon outgrow these kinds of claims. Concurrent with Blashfield's and Tanner's paintings of lessons and dynamic debates about emulation and innovation, Cassatt made statements of her own spirit of independence and defiance of structures and institutional practices. For instance, in the painting Little Girl in a Blue Armchair, which was exhibited in the fifth Impressionist exhibition in 1879, the seated girl overwhelming an oversized chair. Her pose and gaze suggest her willful rejection of adult expectations implied by the living room. Made one year before Blashfield's music lesson, the painting defied the academic language that Blashfield idolized. But Cassatt's painting was not immune to the politics of influence. The painting also established her complicated artistic relationship with her French contemporaries, including Edgar Degas, whom she said helped to paint the background. Some critics read their artistic relationship as a master-pupil connection akin to Bonnat and Blashfield's. Cassatt meant, sent, spent much of her, the rest of her career denying the influence of Degas, and as Matthews has shown, turned increasingly to mother and child compositions as a move away from shared iconography and as a sustained mature art practice for the rest of her career. She played with figure ground relationships, the fictions of space, moderating between naturalistic renderings of awkward gangly toddlers and stylized refigurings of Renaissance and Baroque models. In many of the mother-child paintings, the limbs of the child seem overgrown in relation to the scale of the mother. These visual effects are enhanced by the placement of the disjointed figures pressed up to the front of the picture plane with radically diagonal compositional elements behind them. Her paintings seem to draw on ideas of the child as a metaphor for fresh vision, which began in mid-century and circulated around the Impressionists. Gustave Courbet had included two child muses in the artist's studio from 1855, one positioned at center looking up at the artist, and another sprawled at the right of the composition on the floor on top of a large sheet of paper, making a schematic drawing of a figure. Charles Baudelaire declared in his 1863 discussion of the painter of modern life that, quote, genius is nothing more nor less than childhood recovered at will. But for Baudelaire, it was an adapted and volitional childhood. He continued to describe a, quote, childhood now equipped for self-expression with manhood's capacities and power of analysis. A cartoon in Harper's in 1885 joked about the links artists might go to adapt the child's perspective. The left scene figures a painting before his a painter before his canvas musing, let me see, what do I need with which to produce this effect? As he reaches towards his table of materials where a child watches him paint. In the second image, the painter has scooped up that child, toppled the table, and starts rubbing the boy's head against the canvas while looking up to the sky as though channeling the artist's, uh, the child's energy. This representation literalizes but also mocks the idea of de-skilling and the mantra of the child's perspective. Some proponents of the child as an icon for fresh vision warned of studying academic practice too closely. In The Ambassadors, Henry James described the fate of little Billum as an art student, quote, study had been fatal to him and his productive power faltered in proportion as his knowledge grew. 
in Blanche Howard's 1884 novel, Gwen, about American artists in Brittany, the main character Hammer similarly stated, quote, if I could paint better pictures for never having learned to read, I would gladly blot out of my life the little education I possess. One of the illuminated capitals at the start of a chapter imagines an artist child holding a palette basically the size of his body before a massive canvas. The scale of his painting tools suggest that these devices lead his act of painting visible in swirls and childlike doodles on the surface of the canvas. The child steps forward as though he could walk straight into the space of the picture. And the child overall in these conversations is registering a form of resistance to artistic prototypes and tradition by symbolizing an untrained eye. In 1901, the US critic Maria Taylor Blovelt summed up the goal of artistic temperament in the New York magazine, The Book Buyer, quote, the artist is the child who becomes more and more of a child as the years go on. Resituated in this discourse, if articulating a knowing version of the child's perspective was a central goal of modernism, Cassatt realizes it. Gone is the model of the baby nestled comfortably in French motherhood, also evoked in Pierre Pouvy de Chavon's 1865 mural of Picardy in Amiens, which Judith Barter links with the mirror for that sunflower. While Pouvy's babies suckle and sleep, Cassatt's child is alert, upright, independent, and engaged. And the placement of the flower directly over the mother figure's breast seems a witty comment on Pouvy's rendition of France as artistic motherhood. Cassatt's paintings also connect with psychological currents emerging in the 1880s, which offered new ideas about the subjectivity and creative potential of the child, as well as how child-parent relationships operate in adolescence. The idea of the child as a dutiful extension of parents or a miniature adult was supplanted by that of the child as a unique individual with an independent imaginative life. G. Stanley Hall spearheaded an effort to better understand the capacity of the child as an innately self-aware individual. Hull and other US psychologists in particular um, declared a greater internal capability and emotional independence even for young children than Europeans and prescribed the role of motherhood to encourage opportunities for children's self-assertion to develop their imaginative faculties. In the period after Darwin's theories of evolution were published, childhood took on a greater significance as an agent of human progress, as Carolyn Steedman has explored. The American evolutionary theorist John Fiske argued that extended infancy was actually the center of human development. Quote, it is babyhood that has made man what he is, Fisk declared in 1889. He characterized childhood as a, quote, period of plasticity, describing molding and shaping of the forms of the child on the interior as well as their exterior growth. While Cassatt drew from traditional iconography in her use of mother and child subjects, she highlights the artificiality of the painted image with those spatial inconsistencies, dappled brushwork, elongated limb, and the thick impasto on the children's faces. In the process of building these non-mimetic fictions, she emphasizes the plasticity of the child. Cassatt's dense and textured brushwork creates a sense of visual dynamism, as though the child's form is caught in the process of becoming, evolving, and separating from the parent figure, discovering the presence of its own subjective mind. In this way, aesthetic formation enfolds with subject formation. Cassatt literalizes this relationship, as Matthews has observed, by frequently displaying unfinished work. A close corollary to Cassatt's mirror and the layers of reflection and refraction within is Henry James's portrayal of his child protagonist in What Maisie Knew of 1897, which imagined the child's perspective, intuitive and complex beyond the language to convey thoughts and feelings. Anticipating Sigmund Freud's interest in children's, quote, receiving and reproducing impressions, James offers, and I quote from what Maisie knew, a register of impressions to explore Maisie's interior self, her, quote, small expanding consciousness, 
in which she comprehends more than she can articulate about the convoluted sexual relationships of her divorced parents. Maisie's self-awareness belies her age and develops the idea, quote, of an inner self. Midway through the novel, James announces Maisie's ironic possession of a, quote, innocence so saturated with knowledge. Twice in the novel, James used the metaphor of being flattened against a pane of glass to register the meeting between Maisie's consciousness and the world. James described, quote, the sharpened sense of spectatorship was the child's main support, the long habit from the first of seeing herself in discussion. It gave her often an odd air of being present at her history in as separate a manner as if she could get only get it experience by flattening her nose against a pane of glass. Maisie peers out at the world from her newly self-reflexive subjective position, feeling, quote, henceforth as if she were flattening her nose upon the hard window pane of the sweet shop of knowledge. Cassatt's children are constructed in similar terms to James's formulation, pressed and flattened at the edge between interiority and exteriority. As some scholars, including Griselda Pollock, has, have observed, Cassatt's paintings seem to anticipate Jacques Lacan's later concept of the mirror stage in psychoanalytic theory, in which the child recognizes their reflection in the mirror and discovers that the dynamic image is separate from the self. This spark of subjectivity um, at, in Lacan's terms, the quote, threshold of the visual world and operating spatially marks a fragmented self. Cassatt's mirror builds out that fragmentation, literally parsing the child's body across these three different modes of display, none of them real. Frames of mirror and of chair only echo a frame around the picture, all evoking a shifting relationality. If James's Maisie has a gap between experience and language, Cassatt's dynamic structures build a visual language to bridge that. Cassatt's practice is particular, but not entirely unique. Other US women artists working in France and sending paintings abroad also explored these kinds of discourses of child psychology and independence. In Cecilia Beau's Les Derniers Jours d'Enfance, which she sent to Paris in 1887 as her first salon submission, the boy's scrutinizing gaze from his mother's lap is focused out of the picture plane, breaking the intimacy between them. The, French, uh, the painting's French title, which for Beau was, quote, never translatable or to be spoken in English, but if we were to, would roughly be the last days of childhood, implies a sense of mourning for the mother as the child ages, uh, ages beyond their past intimacies. The art historian Nina Auerbach argues that the painting, quote, does everything uh, to separate its subjects. There is nothing universal about this dynamic pair, nor do mother and child corroborate in a circle of repose. In a photograph taken just before the painting traveled to Paris, Beau posed beside it, but with the mother figure oddly cropped out of the frame, as though she displaced that figure or identified herself more with the child, as both acknowledge the viewer. Ellen Emmett Rand, another U.S. artist working in Paris in the late 1890s, used her half-brother Grenville Hunter as a model for her paintings. Whether a drawing in a shared sketchbook, which she bought at a Paris art supply store, that renders the child in three dimensions as he presses his back against an imaginary wall, and in particular his face um, emerging with white heightening and a shadow behind his head, or in her many larger paintings in oil, Rand probes the brooding psychology of Hunter's inner life. Born in 1892 and resident in London near their cousin, Henry James, Hunter and Rand on visits from France were connected with James while he was writing What Maisie Knew and ongoing dramas of their mother also resonate in James's novel. Um, for more on Rand, um, please check out a newly published edited volume by Alexis Boylan. In a period in which women artists were often infantilized and encouraged to take up the iconography of mother and child as though it were somehow natural to them, Cassatt, Beau, and Rand all take up the motif but denaturalize it 
as they chart squirming, sassy, oversized, complex figures in experimental compositions which do not acquiesce to models. Cassatt's paintings resonate with the tensions between emulation and independence in the discourse that declared American artists the children of French models. As Clayson, Kevin Sharp, and Adrienne Virabin have argued, Cassatt's transnational position meant that her participation in the French art world was by no means assured. She ratcheted up this iconography as these dynamics shift. And so while she participates in four of the Impressionist exhibitions between 1879 and 1886, everything changes by the end of the 1880s. Um, the group Pente Graveur, with which Cassatt had long been affiliated, retitled itself in 1891, La Pente Graveur Française, excluding her and other expatriate members from an exhibition only about three months before, and Cassatt had been building a major print project um, for that show when she found out that she would be excluded from it. French exhibition spaces increasingly closed themselves to foreign artists, publishing pamphlets complaining about an invasion of US artists in particular into a saturated art world. The same anxieties about French artistic legacy that shaped Bouguereau's motherland are operational here. Cassatt was excluded from the Centennial Exhibition of French Art in the Paris Expo in 1900 because of her nationality, and also from a retrospective of Impressionism in London in 1905. She was omitted from Winford Dewhurst and Theodore Duré's books on the history of Impressionist painters in this same period. Suggestively, French critics labeled her consistently as both a, quote, painter of childhood and as an American painter, in ways that Viraben has shown dissociate her from the history of French Impressionism. At the same time, interest for Cassatt's paintings increased in the United States. While Cassatt may have explored the restive child as an artistic statement of her independence, U.S. critics increasingly appropriated these visual effects for national ends. By 1910, American critics like Clara McChesney declared the, quote, direct and spontaneous delineation of Cassatt's brushwork as evidence of her, quote, Americanism. Instead of linking her stylistic approach with French Impressionism, U.S. reviewers insisted that that brushwork, fittingly coupled with those independent children, signified, and here again I quote, American self-sufficiency and assertiveness. This became all the more apparent when several of her mother-child paintings hung on a single line in the 1915 suffrage exhibition at Nodler's in New York. Um, and I'm grateful to my Oxford um, PhD student, research assistant, Alex Solibiev, um, for compiling for me um, color images of all of those um, paintings uh, on the wall in the image that I just showed you. Cassatt's assertion of childhood independence in her paintings is suggestive at a time when her role in the transnational history of modernism and American art were in flux. To revisit this psychoanalytic frame that I mentioned before, if we read not only the child within Cassatt's paintings as discovering its subjective self through the other of its reflection, can we also read paintings of parental figures and children by other US artists in Paris as indicative of a collective cultural mirror stage? In other words, if we extrapolate from the personal to the collective and apply psychoanalysis to the wide cultural practice of US art study in Paris, do these paintings enact US artists seeing themselves as distinct from the French model? Representing the burgeoning autonomy of the child from Tanner to Cassatt, Beau to Rand, opens out these possibilities of acknowledging debts to French art practice and seeking to surpass them, following Pollock's model of the gambit, charting reference, deference, and difference that I mentioned at the first lecture. Yet they also underscore its problems and paradoxes, because the United States was not only a post-colonial youth discovering itself through this French mirrored refraction, it was also a colonialist entity. In its settler colonial projects across the continent and in the adoption of overseas colonies from 1898, so playing the child in Europe deflected this colonial reality as part of a discourse in, as Daniel Immerwar puts it, 
quote, how to hide an empire. Some European observers did sound alarm bells increasingly across the late 19th century. In 1881, a Frenchman warned his contemporaries to, quote, beware the Americans, people who always grow and grow. Cartoons of this period by Grant Hamilton and Louis Dalrymple after the War of 1898 notably invert the trope of Americans as children so resonantly played in France. On the cover of Judge in June 19, 1898, a befuddled Uncle Sam holds out a screaming black child with an identification tag reading Philippines. The caption adds, information wanted, quoting Uncle Sam, now that I've got it, what am I going to do with it? Seven months later, Puck merged these colonial layers together with an image of a schoolroom managed by Uncle Sam. A misbehaving Indian is segregated at the back of the schoolroom while a black figure washes the windows. The mostly white children sit reading in the back and the new unruly Colonial children are scrutinized in the foreground. A caricature of a Chinese student waits at the door. In this inversion from playing the child in Europe, cartoons magnify Uncle Sam as the icon of the United States relationally to the unruly child. These images mark the fungibility of the metaphor of the child and suggest the ways in which Americans in this period selectively adopted or dismissed the symbol. With an empire stretching 10,000 miles, as one cartoon boldly announced, by 1901 in Paris, the American Register reported that the United States' speedy growth from a, quote, baby nation to a power of the first class would surprise Europeans. If we introduce this complex and fraught baby nation to this shifting transnational artistic context, what of Cassatt's babies who proliferate and multiply as she paints them repeatedly and as they grow and grow before our very eyes? Does imperialism lurk beneath and around these children when we ourselves press our noses up against the hard window pane of the sweet shop of knowledge as we interrogate these pictures? As with the other tropes of paradoxical US innocence in Paris I've explored in this lecture series, whichever parts of these cultural structures of childhood these artists intercepted, their representations were anything but innocent. Thank you for your attention and I invite Alistair Wright back to talk through some of this material with me. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Emily. Uh, it's another fantastic, uh, fantastically interesting talk. Uh, I, mean, I was especially caught by the opening out at the end into the question of the way in which the States is presented as the parent to new, uh, new holdings and so forth. I mean, it really complicates the question of the child. Uh, and who, who is the child? Who plays the child? What is it, what's at stake in uh, playing the child? So I, thought that, I thought that was really interesting. I wanted to come back to an earlier moment in the uh, in the talk. Uh, I'm going to permit myself to ask a question. Sorry, Thank I should you. say it. Yes. Permitting myself to ask a question at the start, uh, but I would remind people that they can type questions into the YouTube live chat and they will appear on my screen and I will do my best to, uh, to, to translate them for Emily. Uh, so so what, when you started out, uh, we were looking at the Blashfield, uh, the music lesson, I think it is. Uh, and there, the, the, the model seemed to be, if you're a ch being a child means having a master or having a parent, having, having someone who's teaching you. Uh, and then there's the other model, which is having a child, being a child means not having any training and that that's the kind of beauty of it, that you're innocent, that you see the eye, you, you see the world with innocent eyes, the eyes of a child and so forth. And that's a common trope going all the way through in the 19th century in France. As you said, Baudelaire, when he talks about Guise, uh, in the painter of modern life, he says he drew like a barbarian, like a child. Yeah. And I think for you know, I think for Baudelaire, that's kind of a good thing. I mean, it might sound like it's not, but it's you know, it's about that kind of innocent eye, not painting what you've been trained to paint, but seeing for yourself. Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, childish innocent eye, and it goes all the way through to Matisse in the middle of the 20th century. They're still saying basically the same thing. So we have these two models, and I think I maybe have two questions about that, or a two-part question. Uh, one is, it, is there, I mean, it looked like from your talk, but is there a tendency for people who are doing the academic training 
to very much conceive of and paint images of children as being tutored versus people who's, who are you know, someone like Cassatt, who is very well aware that following academic training may not be the thing that she wants to do if she's gonna be an exciting artist. Uh, doing pictures that thematize childhood as kind of resistance to or turning away from, as you argued very compellingly, uh, the mother. So that, that is, that's the first part of the question. Is there a difference between academically inclined American artists and uh, less academically inclined American artists in Paris. Uh, and the second part is there's something kind of interesting about saying that you're not going to be trained and you're going to be like a child in the untutored sense, the second untutored sense, which is that that's equally following a very well-established prototype laid out by French writers and artists. I mean, also people in other countries. So is there ever a, a kind of sense of self-consciousness in, as you've been looking at these people, that claiming to be a child with innocent eyes is itself a very old kind of trope? And, and, and you've been, you kind of can say that because you've heard other people saying it. Yeah, thank so, you. Sorry, that was a very long question, but two kind of two parts within it. No, it's great. And I, I took notes, so I'm, I'm okay, good, back good. with you on both. Um, so yeah, so in general, I do think that we can kind of lump categories of kind of academic approaches featuring this kind of uh, dutiful relationship and more modernist approaches pushing back and kind of experimenting with psychology. Um, but I also think that there's not a strict progression from one to the other in time. Both of these practices are kind of happening simultaneously. And I do think that there are objects that are kind of intervening in both. And I think the Tanner painting does some of that work where the apprentice is tied with the master, but also has some kind of independence and autonomy. And so there are objects like that that feature a kind of middle ground. Um, and then in response to your second question, I was thinking about this uh, funny comment that Oscar Wilde makes about how Americans are particularly inclined to give you the, the benefit of their inexperience um, in the ways that they offer to either make art or kind of circulate. And I think he's thinking about, about what the Wild West shows traveling um, in England and in France mm. as part of um, kind of the source, the context around which he says that. But I think there is a really interesting slippage in which the notion of this kind of um, a naive and childish experience that has a kind of anti-modernist thread, as you point out, um, that is circulating throughout the French um, uh, art, art criticism of the 19th century gets kind of refigured and, and taken up in a way that implies that um, there is a limit to what French artists can achieve in that vein because of the kind of layers of tradition that are mm. kind of inescapable um, in some of those um, motherhood paintings that I that I showed. And so I think there is an idea that these artists are achieving something new by their positionality. But I do think that that claim too can be troubled as a, another paradox of these, um, these practices. They're all kind of knowing and savvy and um, witty sometimes in ways that absolutely belie their very possibility of what they say they're trying to achieve. Yeah, interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah. It is, I mean, it, it's equally true, of course, of French artists. You know, when Matisse says, I want to see with the eyes of a child in 1954 or whenever it is, you know, that's also, it's as tired a trope for him, I mean, more so than it is for American artists in Paris in the late 19th century. Yeah. Well, I have other questions, but we have a, sorry, were you going? I was just going to follow up on one thing, which is that um, there's actually five chapters in this book, and I have presented four of them in the Terra lectures, but um, the fifth is about this um, kind of trope of wishing that one had been born blind and then suddenly gaining uh, sight yeah. to be able to see what uh, the world could look like fresh, and that's mm. deeply tied to this kind of childhood trope, um, but what I'm interested in in that other material is two US artists who are working in Paris, one a sculptor and one an abstract painter, Morgan Russell, who was in Paris um, in the teens. And 
What's interesting about both the sculptor, George Gray Barnard, um, and this abstract painter is that they both make claims that their art is not necessarily coming from the position of having seen anew, but that it, the art itself actually represents what the organ of the eye could see hmm. when it was first kind of created. And so I think about those claims as a kind of extension of like a kind of one-upping of those claims um, of innocent vision um, that are no less paradoxical, but um, I think deeply interesting. Fascinating. So we're inviting you back next week to give that chapter, <laughs> based on that chapter, or we'll, we'll figure something out. Uh, so we, we have a comment uh, in the chat box. This is from Jessica. Uh, it, it's not really a question, but it, a comment that you might want to respond to, uh, which is, she's making the very good point, which is that this idea of seeing with a child's eyes goes back, I mean, in some ways goes back to even earlier formulations uh, of the artist as child genius that is already present in Vasari. She doesn't say, but I think there's the, is it Chimabue? Someone comes across Chimabue, is it? That's right, yes, I think it is Chimabue. Who's... Or Chimabue comes across yeah. Giotto, something like that. Anyway, and, and he's just out there in the woods as a child drawing something or carving a piece of wood. I forget exactly the details of the story, but yes, yeah, so, so there's a long history. And uh, she mentions Carol Van Manda also as another yeah. writer in which this trope appears. I don't know if you have anything to say to that. It's, it's an I interesting. Do. Yeah, no, that, it is a really interesting point. And thank you, Jessica. I'm gonna briefly share my screen again. There were a couple of comparisons that I didn't include, but I think are instructive in this kind of vein, thinking about some of Cassatt's gambits. Um, this is a comparison that um, I've seen in a few um, uh, articles um, related to Cassatt and thinking about her response to Correggio um, in a painting that is in the National Gallery and the ways in which there is this kind of like spatial um, compositional engagement, but then Cassatt also is kind of extending and adapting from that source material. And so I do think it's it's possible that these artists also have read their Vasari and um, that Cassatt is thinking about um, too this kind of trope of the child as um, a kind of mantra in earlier contexts as well. And I think that for that, and then also this um, comparison, which appears in Judith Barter's um, project about um, Mary Cassatt, Modern Woman, um, Cassatt actually bought this painting on the left by Vouet um, around the time that she was making the mirror. And so we can see her, if we think about um, Griselda Pollock's um, kind of idea of the gambit, um, making these references to old master pictures. And to your point, Jessica, playing with the kind of um, um, visual strategies that artists in the period too may have been projecting, um, but then kind of adapting and upending, especially with the kind of surface texture um, that Cassatt employs um, as she uh, kind of absorbs the models so fully that they're almost um, um, invisible in the final um, paintings. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing comparison. And then when you say that she actually bought the Vue, you know, you know then it suddenly like, comes to life. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because in the Vue, it's Venus looking in the mirror, which is, very, you know, that's another kind of very conventional trope. But, and the child is not looking in the mirror, the child is holding the mm -hmm. mirror. Or the young figure, the putty, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, Cassatt you know, flips that around, and it's the kid. Well, it's the kid that we. It's, it's the kid whose face we see in the mirror, mm -hmm. which I suppose means the kid's looking at us too, as we. Yes, exactly. It seems mirror. a little bit ambiguous whether the child is looking at themselves or at us, and it's kind of both, I think. No, well, it's the classic painterly problem, right? Pictorial problem. If you want to show someone looking at themselves in a mirror, then you can't see. Unless you're aligned with them, you can't see their reflection. Yeah. Right. So they have to, the painter has to fudge it. So we have another question here. Uh, this is from Raimi. Uh, and they would like to hear more about the child adult trope in US imperial imagery. And they're familiar, they say, with the dynamic in cartoons and caricatures, but does it also appear in art? Mm. Yeah, fine great art, question. I guess. Fine art at the, turn of the, at the turn of the century is what they would like to know. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Rainey. That's a great question. And indeed, there's no dearth of caricatures and cartoons that are imagining the newly held um, U.S. colonies after 1898 as um, the, the new children of Uncle Sam. 
And um, it's a question that I've been thinking about a lot as I've been working on this chapter, trying to think about whether there is a kind of media specificity, whether in the space of, of fine art, we can also find these dynamics. And I think that the jury is still out on that question. I haven't found any particular examples that, um, that directly play out that relationship, but there are so many images that are running through my head of um, kind of French colonial murals at World's Fairs, for instance, that are some, have sometimes been shown at the Quai Branly, um, where I think there is a kind of use of the child as a way to reaffirm French authority over um, um, colonized subjects. And so I think it would require one to look more at the kind of decorations of like Chicago in 1893, for instance, or the 1915 Panama Pacific to see if some of the murals on display um, kind of play with allegory in ways that inflect that relationship. I think that would be the most likely bet in the kind of fine art context for a more overt use of, that, of those um, racist tropes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it does have, you know, one of the great things about hearing someone talk about American art in France, this is, is kind of the great payoff of the terror uh, in many ways, is that it makes one reflect differently on, I mean, it makes me reflect differently on things that I thought I already knew a lot about, which is French art. Uh, and so this is, uh, I mean, listening to you then was making me reflect on the very frequent rhetoric of the French state that West African colonies are its children mm -hmm. and that it has a kind of parental responsibility uh, towards yeah. it. It might have to be stern, it might have to be strict, but it's, you know, it's going to help its children uh, grow up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm sure, I mean, nothing's coming to mind immediately, but I'm sure there are images that have, that make that uh, West African colonies as children trope explicit. Uh, in the, in <laughs> so I don't remember the name of the exhibition, but there was a great exhibition at the Quai Branly about um, kind of the, col the colonized body that had some murals from fairs that I think play out that rhetoric exactly. And I was just going to share my screen again quickly. Um, in the back of that cartoon, there is a kind of text on the wall that gets at this same kind of idea that um, it's a kind of uh, governing without consent as a kind of um, stepping stone to self-government that needs to be taught through the paradoxical colonial presence. Um, and so I think that... Um, kind of um, hierarchy building is probably adapted in many ways from the French rhetoric that you're describing too. And that one of the ways in which the United States is trying to articulate its space on the global stage is to um, have this paternal relationship. And that's their kind of uh, evidence of their maturation, I think. Oh, thinking about paternal, it's, I'm gonna permit myself one last question. Yeah, Although it's kind of, I mean, it may be one that is unanswerable in a few minutes or even possibly at all. I was, I was struck by the, uh, the Bouguereau image uh, and then before it, the Daumier of the, of the, uh, of the motherland. And of course it, it matters that in French, la patrie is feminine, right? Yeah. And it's different in Germany, der, der Vaterland is, is, uh, is masculine. And I, I wonder if there's something to be figured out about the way in which, I don't know, France as parent for American artists is also gendered. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I don't quite know how one will begin to think that through. No, I think that's really an interesting point because it's 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 interesting when you see like those photographs of Bouguereau in his um, in the Academy Julienne and he's basically the France motherland, which he paints as female, but he's playing as this kind of French master. Mm. And so there is, I think, something to a thread to follow there about the uh, kind of identifications of gender rules for the French masters, um, yeah. how that informs the kind of relationship, especially as transitions are happening in gender politics in study um, yeah. between the kind of ateliers that are split by gender or the exclusion of women from the Ecole de Beaux-Arts until 1897, um, that I think, uh, yeah, it presents some complexities. 
And I guess too, I would link it back to the debates about depopulation in France as well, that this kind of like gender bending even across the yeah. arts is, does that become implicated in these larger anxieties? Yeah, totally fascinating. The rich question, thank you. Yeah, no, no, uh, well, no, thank you. Uh, so I think we are, we're about out of time. Uh, so we're gonna have to draw it to a close, I'm afraid. Uh, but thank you to uh, people who sent in questions. Uh, we're sorry we haven't been able to answer them all, but we are out of time. Uh, in closing, I would like to thank the Terra Foundation again for making all of this possible with their generous support of the visiting professorship. Uh, and I'd like to thank Torch also for making this possible and having all this uh, digital stuff work so effectively and efficiently. It's not easy to, uh, to do. Uh, but most of all, of course, I would like to thank Emily again uh, for what has been an incredibly stimulating and thought-provoking lecture today, but also the whole series uh, has been kind of fantastic and revealing. And as I say, you know, as a French, someone who works a lot on France in this period, uh, I've learned so much about the stuff that I look at as well as the stuff that, that you look at. So I think it's, you've really shown that we can't think about these things separately. That, the, that this is part of a uh, kind of whole ecosystem that interacts, its multiple parts interact in very interesting, uh, continuously in very interesting ways. So thank you again for sharing this, uh, this work with us. Thanks again to the audience for listening. It's been great having you with us uh, and good night. Bye.